Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, folks. It's Friday, February 10th, 2017. Filling in for Mike Pesco on The Gist. I'm Julia Yaffe. I'm a staff writer with The Atlantic. And today we're going to talk about all the crazy stuff that happened this week. It's only been three weeks since President Trump has become president. It seems like a lot longer, but it's only been three weeks. And this week, a lot of really important stuff happened. For example, last night, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, based in uh, San Francisco, handed down a unanimous decision blocking the Trump administration's immigration ban. But let's talk briefly about this week's unsung hero, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer. Sean Spicer has had a rough couple of weeks, and this week it just got oh so bad for him. The week opened with comedian Melissa McCarthy hilariously portraying Sean Spicer on Saturday Night Live. She was spraying reporters with a super soaker. She was ramming them with the podium. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask about the travel ban on Muslims. Yeah, it's not a ban. I'm sorry? It's not a ban. The travel ban is not a ban, which makes it not a ban. But you just called it a ban. Because I'm using your words. You said ban. You said ban. Now I'm saying it The president to you. tweeted, and I quote, yeah. if the ban were announced with a one-week notice. Yeah, exactly. You just said that. He's quoting you. It's your words. He's using your words when you use the words and he uses them back. It's circular using of the word, and that's from you. It was amazing. If you haven't seen it, it's a week old, but if you haven't seen it, go see it. So it turns out, though, that Sean Spicer kind of got in trouble for it. Politico reported uh, a couple days later that uh, President Trump took issue with it, not taking issue with it for the usual thing he takes issue with uh, when he sees SNL, but he was upset that Spicer was played by a woman and that that made him look weak, which is just amazing. And for a while there, it seemed that Sean Spicer's job was in jeopardy. There were reports from CNN on Tuesday that the president wanted to replace him, which is crazy because it seems like part of it was because he was played by a woman on SNL. But why would you replace a man who will go to bat for you and he will go to bat for you so hard that when he's faced with a New York Times story, that says that the president sits around in his bathrobe watching TV and not really bothering to read the executive orders he signs. When he's presented with a story like that, he says not that the president knows exactly what's in his executive orders, but that the president doesn't own a bathrobe. 
I mean, it's really quite masterful if you think about it. Instead of the press talking about Trump signing an executive order that he didn't know put former Breitbart chief Steve Bannon on the National Security Council, they were talking about whether the president owned a bathrobe. Here, for example, is Anderson Cooper interviewing Maggie Haberman, one of the two authors on that New York Times story. As you can see in this photograph that the Daily Mail published, it's apparently from a trove of late 1970s photographs obtained by a collector. Here's another one. Obviously, we don't know if Donald Trump actually owned the robe that he is lounging in. It could have been a hotel robe, could have been provided by the photographer, but he is wearing one. Uh, I don't even know what it's <laughs> You're bath, bathrobe that case. <laughs> what we end up talking about is a day of bathrobes, uh, which is there's plenty of presidents who have worn bathrobes. There's tons of pictures of mm. Ronald Reagan in a bathrobe, um, LBJ in a bathrobe, um, HW in a bathrobe, Nixon in a bathrobe. This is a surreal um, conversation. Th- we're right. Well, I mean, we're, we're, we're yes, going I down know, this path. So this is where we are, folks. The leader of the free world is sitting around watching TV in a bathrobe that he may or may not have signing executive orders that he may or may not have read, executive orders that have a massive impact on hundreds of thousands of people all over the world, and we're discussing bathrobes and SNL. It's scary, it's bizarre, and it reminds me a lot of a place that I've spent much of my life studying, Russia. Which brings us to our interview with Miriam Elder, who is the world editor of BuzzFeed, and before that, the Guardian correspondent in Moscow. And Miriam is going to tell us about yet another Russian term that Americans are going to have to become familiar with now that our president is such buddies with Vladimir Putin. And that's something called whataboutism. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Here with me today is Miriam Elder, who is a world editor at BuzzFeed and my very old buddy. And uh, Slate has been so kind as to let us just record our ongoing freak out conversation that's been going on since about November 8th, right? Uh, Because like me, Miriam has been a correspondent in Moscow uh, before becoming world editor at BuzzFeed. She was the Guardian correspondent in Moscow and she spent seven years in Moscow? Seven years. Seven years. So Miriam has also been noticing a lot of the same patterns as I have in the you know early days of the Trump administration, and we wanted to talk about that. So what are you seeing that is freaking you out, Miriam? I think just you know what you and I talk about all the time is these comparisons to uh, the early days of the Putin administration, the Putin classics, such as meddling in the judicial process, such as being critical of media, such as hating satire, which was, you know, a thing that pe- a lot of people forget about Russia these days, but just how much Putin hated those early satirical shows about him. So tell us tell us about those early satirical shows. I don't think you were in Moscow yet, but this is an infamous story that I everybody was in knows. Moscow. I was in you Moscow were? for a okay. year when like he started to move against the media, partly because he <laughs> really hated this show called Kukli, which was uh 
this like, you know, this puppet show that made fun of him as if he were like this little puny tsar in a castle. And he had one of the oligarchs like buzzing around his shoulder like a little fly. And, um, you know, there was no Twitter back then. And I don't really see Putin as the type to like tweet out his rage. But he still saw it as biased and one sided, right? And totally unfair. Totally unfair. So what did he do then? So he shut down the show. It started with shutting down the show, right? And then eventually he went and moved against the whole channel for like other reasons beyond just uh, beyond just the satire. But it was also their poorly. coverage of the war, in, the second war in Chechnya, as I right. understand, right? right? You know what? What freaked me out a lot was the first time that Trump actually went after business when he went after the carrier plant. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't know about you, but it really reminded me of the Pikalova incident when it was, I think, two thousand eight or two thousand nine when workers at a plant owned by um, an oligarch named Oleg Deripaska complained that he was shutting down their plant and they were going to lose their jobs, and they complained on TV. And so Trump, uh, Putin, <laughs> <laughs> this happens all the time now, <laughs> uh, Putin summoned you know, various government officials and business, uh, business people and made the owner of the company on live TV sign over, you know, sign that he was going to keep the company open. He went back to a seat all the way on the other end of the table. And then Putin said, hey, give me back my pen. (laughs) And he made him go all the way back. So it was like this kind of humiliation of business people on live TV, right, for the sake of the people. And there's a reason that Putin does this stuff like that we always talk about, which is it's a lot easier to stoke hatred and a lot easier to create enemies inside the country, be it the elite in Moscow and St. Petersburg, be it gay people. Um, it's a lot easier to create internal enemies than it is to come up with some like robust economic plan that diversifies you beyond oil and gas. So I think like that's the thing to really watch out for with, with Trump as well. Like, is it just to create these cleavages so that you can distract from the fact you're not dealing with the real problems? And what did you make of his, his drawing a moral equivalence between the U.S. and Russia and then Mike Pence slipperily doubling down on that? There was a lot of pearl clutching in Washington and New York. Do you agree with the pearl clutchers or the moral equivalents? I mean, I think like asking presidents on like questions of morality is kind of strange. Like I, his words were were horrific, though. <laughs> like, you know, the whataboutism of inaccurate also whataboutism of, you know, being presented by Bill O'Reilly saying Putin's a killer and him saying, you know, that the U.S. is no angel. So explain to the podcast listeners what what aboutism is because it's going to be one of those terms like gru compromat that i think are going to enter our lexicon yeah disinformation so what aboutism is a cold war era tactic that was revived by the putin administration when in like the mid 2000s mm-hmm. i guess yep and it's kind of it's the entire philosophy behind all russian propaganda efforts russia today what have you Rather than like addressing Russia's own ills or presenting Russia as like some paradise, it's this smart way of saying like, yeah, we're bad at this, but what about you? What you guys are doing over there? What Trump did was a classic what aboutist uh, tactic, which is you don't address the idea that um, Putin has killed or overseen the killing of critics. You turn the mirror back on the United States and. And say, well, what well, what about you guys? And, you know, that's an argument that actually has been kind of like at home in the uber progressive left. And so it's interesting to see it adopted by Trump. And, you know, you saw this with the Russian hacking, for example, where um, how many times I'm sure you heard this a billion times where it's like, well, it's not like the U.S. doesn't do this. 
you know, and meddle in other countries, meddle in other elections, process. or even yeah. you know ha- do offensive hacking or anything like that. And the, the right response for me is just because the U.S. does it doesn't make it right. If you're critical of how the U.S. does it, you should be critical when any state does it. Okay, how about the attacks on the media, which has been going on even before, since even before he was elected? I mean, we've talked about this. How does it remind you of Russia? It's just the president should not be the president should not be um, a media critic, right? That's like a pretty a pretty basic statement. That's how Putin certainly functioned. But I don't know. It feels like also there's. I don't I don't think that it existed in Moscow or in Russia to the degree that it exists here where like it's clearly working for Trump to like call out the press as the enemy. I feel like that's a little bit different. Like you didn't have vast numbers of like Russians being like, yeah, the media is shitty. But then also, I don't know, in Russia, like, didn't it feel like the people who chose not to take part in like the media climate that the government was pushing was really small the people who read like Novaya Gazeta and listened to Echo Moskvi, which are which are liberal uh, liberal uh, newspaper and a liberal radio station, were a tiny, minute segments of the population. It doesn't feel like that here. It feels like a much more even split. Like yeah. there, it felt very much under siege. I don't know. Am I being too optimistic now? I'm like trying to. I'm trying to like see the. You know. No, that's okay. But um, in private, you're a little <laughs> bit more panicky. So I'm. I'm wondering. So what? What gives you? cause to be optimistic and what keeps you up at night so what keeps me up at night actually like last night i had this horrific dream um that i was like in the middle of the war in yemen and so like the the, the yemen raid of uh you know that everybody's been discussing for like the past week i think that kind of stuff is really problematic when you have uh you know a president who it looks like is surround you know again similar to to situations we see in russia and beyond surrounding himself with a really small number of people maybe not advising as far as he should and not delegating decision making as he should and then it ends with like the death of civilians in yemen and uh and his commander um so that kind of stuff keeps me up at night and then the stuff that has been just so so different than the russia situation is um just civil activism here like the number of people who, you know, went to JFK to work as immigration lawyers and things like that. And then also um, the institutions, which are like obviously best shown by the courts. Yeah. Which yeah. Russia didn't have, right? Like Russia didn't have anything to fight back. Right. He was, you know, he was eviscerating a quote unquote democracy that had been there for nine years and was still barely off its feet. Right. And a really, really imperfect democracy. Not that there's a perfect one here. But one that was so fragile and was already just had like signs of rot so Mm -hmm. quickly. So you talked about, you know, a lot of issues happening at the same time. You are an editor. You oversee a lot of reporters in a lot of different parts of the world. At the same time, the Trump administration is flooding the zone with shit. Like there is so many things happening all at once. They all seem absolutely crazy and unprecedented. How do you deal with that as an editor, as a journalist to prevent your journalists from running around like, you know, chickens with their heads cut off. How do you deal with that? What's happening in the U.S. is part of something bigger that's happening on the planet. The way that I kind of talk about it is we're seeing the end of like the post-war world order. And Trump is a huge challenge to that. Brexit is a huge challenge. Europe is, you know, under an immense strain. And we're just kind of trying to focus on the big stories that that get at that and look at what's coming next, not only reacting to what's happening now, but yeah, kind of looking at what's coming next. So there's like there's huge elections in Europe coming up that I'm like enormously obsessed with. So. so what do you describe what's happening there and how you see it playing out and what the significance of it is? To put it very, very simplistically, it's like 
the European Union is under threat from kind of two situations. One is a refugee crisis that was taken advantage of by far-right forces that had been kind of looking to break it up to begin with. And then those guys are also being fed by, you know, various forms of support from Russia. So everybody just, I don't know, it just feels like this, in, you know, this country, Washington, D.C. and New York, this like liberal elite person thing is just walking around, you know, with bug eyes trying to figure out um, which way is up. But at the same time, and in this, I have to say, it's very similar to mm. Moscow. Crazy shit is happening outside the window, but mm. everybody's still going to their nice bougie restaurants and drinking their imported wine and having their small plates with their imported burrata. It's this cognitive dissonance, right, between bougie normalcy and the world as we know it really ending. Yes, but I could also argue, actually, that that's like a difference with Russia because Russia didn't have like that bougie life, you know, until what, 2006, seven, like these restaurants really started opening. So to them, it was it was new and to embrace that lifestyle was almost to like. It was also entering into some weird compact with the government where it's like, it's fine, it's fine. Like, we'll accept, like, the, the nice renovations of Gorky Park that you give us. Um, but here it's different. Like, this is how we've been living for, mm -hmm. you know, for decades and decades. You were part of the team that decided to publish the Dodgy dossier or the Christopher Steele dossier. Mm -hmm. You got a lot of flack and a lot of praise for it. Tell me why you decided to publish it and if you would have still done it and how you respond to your critics. Three questions in one. Go. We like, you know, the many, 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 many news organizations uh, that had this dossier um, had reporters on various aspects of it and were trying to chase it down. So I think that's important to, to put out there. Um, and then what was it? Was it like a Tuesday night or I can't remember what day of the week it was that CNN like drops this story that that uh, both Obama, who then president and President-elect Trump uh, w had been briefed on this document. And then suddenly like. It became the story. What, you know, what is the intelligence community doing using um, a private report to brief the, the president and the president-elect? And so at that point, you know, the dossier itself became, became part of the story. And we published it with the caveat that it's not verified. Every day that's passed has just made it like all the, all the clearer that it was the absolute right decision to publish the story. So many reporters were on this. Like you cannot stress just how many people had this thing. Yep. And yes. Self included. Yep. <laughs> and everybody had, um, a lot of people had hit kind of a brick wall. We dropped the dossier and suddenly it's like, it's like a brick that you drop on the ground and all this dust is kicked up. It just, it kicked up all this reporting and helped us like collectively move forward. I think this is like a crazy time. We're all dealing with so many things and, there's something to be said also for just getting all this information out there just to so we can all move forward. So some people said some some of your critics said that it actually froze the process in place, that a lot of these sources uh, got scared off. Some of them seems like have been killed. So, you know, there like there's uh, all these theories floating around. And one is that uh, there's a chief of staff to um, to Igor Sechin, who was found dead uh, in his car. And Igor Sechin is? is uh, the head of kind of the like security service faction inside Putin's inner circle and is now the head of uh, the big uh, state state oil company. And his chief of staff was found dead. And this is, a you know, one of the thing the theories going around is that this is somehow connected. However, like he was found dead weeks before, you know, I think that more than ever, it's a time for like intense reporting out of Russia. I think we're all trying to figure it out. There's clearly some kind of a shakeup happening. Um, what's like the exact cause is, is, I don't know, it's so hard. Like you remember this from our time there, like it's hard to get these answers. And so then you kind of fall back on speculation, but 
in case it's just it doesn't really help anybody. Yeah. And Russia's, um, you know, completely unlike the Trump White House, the Putin Kremlin does not leak. And right. right and the, the rule of thumb in Russia, as you recall, is whoever talks doesn't know what they're talking about. Whoever is not talking like if they know they're not talking. Right. To me, it's not a coincidence that this is happening after a decade of newsroom cuts and foreign bureau cuts that are still happening. It looks like we're going to be less and less equipped to report from these places. Well, yeah, I mean, I think like save us BuzzFeed. <laughs> well, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of ways to get to get at this at this story, because it's not just a Russia story. It's not just a U.S. story like this is a game that Russia is playing in various parts of the world. And I don't know, you can see you can see evidence that the people are on it. You know, I think everybody's been kind of waiting to watch how like offensive cyber operations really come into the mainstream. Like, have we crossed a border and now this is just kind of how we function? And another is just Russia, you know, throwing its weight around. To what end do you think? I think that Russia wants a seat at the big boy table, that Putin understands very well the work that it would take to bring his economy, his society, his everything up to speed to deserve to sit at that table. So it becomes much easier to chip away at the table and make it lower and just bring down your, you know, your rivals in the West to your level rather than rising to, to meet it. You know, what's interesting about that as you're talking, I'm thinking, OK, uh, a lot of this is happening because of Putin, right? A lot of this is Putin's handiwork, um, throwing American democracy, if not into chaos, then casting it under, you know, casting doubt on it, on its morality, on its legitimacy, uh, trying to fray the transatlantic alliance, uh, undermine NATO, break up the EU. And it's not that Putin becomes the head honcho. It's going to be China, right? And if China comes out ahead after all this chaos sowing. And then swallows Russia. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Wow. All right. Let's leave it there. We've been talking to Miri Melder, world editor at BuzzFeed and former Guardian correspondent in Moscow. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Thanks for having me. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. And now the spiel, which is hilarious to me that all you Gentiles use so many Yiddish words. So Vladimir Lenin once said, every cook can govern the state. Or he said, every cook must learn to govern the state. Actually, he said something far more complex, which was essentially that people of the lower classes must be allowed to, allowed to learn, to be educated enough to be able to govern the state. But no one remembers that. Instead, the phrase that has come down to us through the broken telephone of history is every cook can govern the state. As in anybody, any line cook, any stonemason, any soldier, any member of the proletariat can run a country. But after spending a century in that broken telephone, it has come to mean the opposite of that. It has become a rebuke, 
A cook can't govern a state. A cook can be smart and can be capable and savvy to the ways of the world around her, but governing a state is really, really hard. It's complicated, it's multi-layered and nuanced and perilous. At some point, it's just above the cook's pay grade. Now, I start with this not because I'm a Russia wonk, which I am, and not because the centennial of the Bolshevik Revolution is this year, and not even because I'm a bona fide member of the coastal elite, but because today marks just three weeks, three weeks since Donald Trump has moved into the White House. And every day for the last three weeks, I keep thinking about Lenin and the inversion of that phrase, every cook can govern the state. So take our proverbial cook, Donald Trump. He campaigned as an outsider, a man of the people, but as a successful CEO, which after several bankruptcies is disputable, but a man who would come in and shake up slow, swampy Washington. In his first debate against Secretary Hillary Clinton, the consummate Washington insider, a master of Washington's bureaucratic and procedural thickets, Trump said, Hillary has experience, but it's bad experience. It was his best line in an otherwise disastrous debate, and it resonated with voters who wanted change, not experience. And change they got. Except that the change and Trump's unconventional presidency is running into some serious headwinds. Last night, again, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals unanimously, searingly overruled the Trump administration's travel ban. That travel ban, which was signed into being two weeks ago today, immediately exploded into chaos and uncertainty. Did it affect green card holders? Yes, the White House said. No, Rens Priebus said. Was it a Muslim ban? No, the White House said. Yes, Donald Trump and his allies said. Did the Department of Homeland Security even know about the executive order before it happened? Yes? No? In rushing the order out in a quick and secretive way, ostensibly so that bad hombres couldn't rush into the country— the Trump administration left it to individual Border Patrol officers and airline employees at check-in counters around the world to interpret and implement it. Unconventional? Sure. More efficient? Obviously not. Turns out that whole slow, boring interagency process thing exists for a reason. Another thing that exists for a reason. Briefing books. Also, career National Security Council staffers who know what they're talking about and aren't just political hacks trying to take a wrecking ball to everything. Some jaw-dropping reports have emerged in the last week about just how little Trump is relying on them and is instead getting his information from elsewhere. For example, the Huffington Post reported this week that Trump will only look at briefing materials that can fit on a single page and have no more than nine bullet points. Turns out, unsurprisingly, that's not a lot of information. And so in that same report from Huffington Post, we learned that Trump called his national security advisor, Mike Flynn, at 3 a.m., talk about a 3 a.m. phone call, to ask him if a strong or weak dollar was good for the American economy. Now, setting aside the question of why he's calling his national security advisor with that question, instead of, say, any of the former Goldman Sachs executives he's brought on board to advise him, why does a businessman who claims to have an international multi-billion dollar empire not understand that this is a complex question requiring more than, say, one phone call in the middle of the night? Would Lenin's cook call one of her colleagues in the middle of the night to ask the boiling point of water? Let's stick with the phone calls and briefing materials for a bit, and how the former have come to replace the latter. We also learned this week in a report from Reuters that during his phone call with Russian President Vladimir Putin, Putin suggested extending the START Treaty. Now, the START Treaty 
is a nuclear arms reduction agreement that went into effect in 2011. It was negotiated by President Obama, and it expires in four years. These things take a long time to negotiate. So Vladimir Putin said, let's start talking about extending the START treaty. Now, Trump reportedly said, hold on, let me ask my guys what the heck the START treaty is. Now, I can only imagine the laughter in Moscow while they were put on hold as Trump asked his advisors. Here are other things that President Trump has learned over the phone from foreign leaders instead of from his briefing materials and his staffers. French President Francois Hollande had to explain to President Trump, for example, what was in the Minsk agreement. That was the agreement that froze the conflict in eastern Ukraine. And he also had to explain what requirements had to be met for sanctions against Russia to be lifted. And as chaos reigned at U.S. airports the day after Trump signed the immigration order, German Chancellor Angela Merkel had to explain to the American president what the Geneva Conventions were and how the U.S., which is party to them, has certain legal obligations to refugees. Who knew? Who knew the world was so complex and full of all sorts of rules? Who knew that the U.S. still has an independent judiciary and that the president doesn't have unlimited, unreviewable power to issue diktats, even on immigration? Who knew that if you don't properly vet your cabinet nominees, they might have problems getting through even a friendly Congress? Who knew that you are legally barred from hawking your daughter's clothing line from the White House? Trump, it seems, didn't know, which was confirmed by a stunning report this morning in Politico. Let me just read some passages of it to you so you can be stunned right along with me. And I quote, this is the lead of the article. Being president is harder than Donald Trump thought, according to aides and allies who say that he's growing increasingly frustrated with the challenges of running the massive federal bureaucracy. In interviews with nearly two dozen people who have spent time with Trump in the three weeks since his inauguration, said that his mood has careened between surprise and anger as he's faced the predictable realities of governing, from congressional delays over his cabinet nominations and legal fights holding up his aggressive initiatives to staff infighting and leaks. Let me just repeat that. Being president is harder than Donald Trump thought. Yeah, being president is hard. Governing the state is hard. It's hard for a cook, and it's even hard for a businessman, even a businessman who is smart and who does business all over the world. In that Politico piece, a friend of Trump comes to his defense, though. He's an executive at uh, Newsmax, which is a very conservative news outlet. And he said, running the federal government is something new for him, for sure. But I think if he's demonstrated anything in his life, he's a very fast learner and adapts very quickly. But is Trump really willing to learn and adapt instead of just threatening the judicial branch from his Android? That same Politico piece reports that Trump gets uncomfortable at meetings when the conversation gets too detailed and that he quickly changes the topic so that he can appear to be in control. And remember, he still only likes single-page, nine-point briefing papers. So can this cook learn to govern the state? I'm not very hopeful. What does give me hope, however, is that we're all learning. The last three weeks, the last three months since Trump's election, have been a crash course in advanced civics for all of us. Now we've learned about the Logan Act, the Emoluments Clause, about the real way conflicts of interest work and can and can't be untangled, about Senate Rule 19, which was used to muzzle Senator Elizabeth Warren this week, and about the ins and outs of policy implementation, unintended consequences, and the exact balance of power between the executive and judicial branches of government. We are all of us cooks, 
but at least we're learning. And maybe now would be a good time to have a few more of us cooks in the kitchen. That's it for today's show. Thank you to Mary Wilson and Chris Berube, who produced The Gist. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief officer of the Panoply Network. Umperu, Depru, Duperu, and thanks for listening. We should use more Russian words, I feel like. That makes you <laughs> sound more professional. Maskirovka, or the Maski Show. Oh, do you yeah. think we're going to see more Maski Shows until our Maski Show? <laughs> Maski Shows. And what's a Maski Show? A Maski Show is when you send like the, the cops in with their masks, you know, to basically to raid a business that you don't like. Business. Business. <laughs>